Hello everyone, it's April 28th, 2020. This week we're doing a recap of Firefly. No, not that one, I wish. But Firefly Aerospace has got some new funding, and there have been some significant technical changes over the past several years. And so why not talk about it? Let's get into it, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 258 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. So did you hear this week that uh, now officially SpaceX is America's workhorse rocket? provider <laughs> yeah whatever launch, launch uh, officially launcher. from who who said that just people basically because it, it has had more successful flights now than ula so yeah. it, it has officially wow. surpassed it really yeah. new numerically it's official yeah wow. spacex takes the reins and it's been going for well i don't know how long is it ula got going in 2006 and spacex was a couple years before that but you know they didn't start launching anything to orbit until what 2000 when was it 2011 or 10 11 yeah and and ula had heritage from the get-go so Mm -hmm. yeah so spacex caught up and surpassed them pretty quickly which i guess is not surprising considering you know just how ambitious of a company Mm -hmm. spacex is yeah so i think yeah so i found it's it's specifically that it's overtaken the atlas five Okay. Oh, wow. Number of launches. I mean, that, that's, so it, that's big. That's not as big as ULA as a whole, but still like. So Atlas V first launched in 2002 and the first Falcon 9 was in 2010. So perhaps it's not ULA versus SpaceX. It's actually Falcon 9 versus the Atlas V. Right. Well, it's the specific workhorse for kind of yeah. American launches. Yeah. Nice eight year head start. But I mean, right. It makes, I mean, it's believable. I think after how many, whenever we have our, you know, upcoming space flight events, typically, you know, when there isn't a pandemic, it's, you know, SpaceX right. is always <laughs> every other week, it seems. I suppose that pace is going to be picking up even more because they have uh, a lot of Starlink launches to make, if nothing else. But that's, mm-hmm. I don't know, is that like being America's workhorse at that point or just their own? Because <laughs> they're just launching for their own sake. That's a, that's a fair fair point. <laughs> it seems like the, the majority of launches that Falcon 9s will be making from this point forward, or at least for the foreseeable future, is going to be Starlink, right? Because it really seems like, what, it's like two every month at least? Mm-hmm. Something like that? Or, or three per month it's supposed to be? I can't remember. but Something like that. If they, I mean, if they want the Constellation to be that ridiculously big, I mean, they just have mm-hmm. to, you know? Yeah. And they've already surpassed 400 satellites, so wow, only a couple tens of thousands more or something. Right. <laughs> So Firefly, we haven't talked about them in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I think the team from Firefly at that time was the first interview we had ever done, I believe. I might be mistaken, but you know, we've been talking about them since I think our third or fourth episode or something like that pretty pretty early on. I don't know when our first interview was, but I think that they were it. And there's been a lot of changes since that time, uh, a lot of restructuring. So I think that we just kind of want to do a recap of where the company stands now because it's you know kind of like not even quite the same company as it was. I mean, it is in some ways, but it's still a small payload provider, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. That part has not changed. But other mm-hmm. than that, I think that uh, a lot has. Um, so... Yeah. And I guess the main thing that set them apart from everyone else about five or six years ago, the big difference was that they 
had a launch vehicle that used an aerospike design, which was something that no one does. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, 12 little engines that were all arranged circularly around a central spike. And that was a huge technical challenge. And I don't know how far along they came in that. But now they no longer have the whole, (laughs) they are not doing the aerospike thing anymore. They have uh, four reaver engines. That aerospike design was a Methalox engine and now it's just an RP-1 engine. So it's just become a bit more of a conventional rocket now. Although it still uses a carbon composite frame. So that's kind of cool they still use that super lightweight first and second stage one of the things that i've seen it looks like it's like copy pasted from a single source because i've seen it in in multiple sources is uh the fact that it's a pump fed engine but that's what they were doing before so that doesn't really seem like it makes that big of a difference or or that that is not a difference at all and also pre-chaos they had four uh launches already sold it was to a single customer and so you know the recent big news was that they sold two launches so we're going to get more into this today uh, or in a sec here that they are owned by a new company that has committed to paying for or to funding them through two launches. But kind of the, the news item here is that now they've actually got a customer uh, for their second launch. It sounds like they do for their first launch. We'll get into that as well. But even, you know, before the chaos happened, they had, you know, a customer and four launches scheduled. So um, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of cool to see them pick this, this cadence back up and, you know, and kind of move forward with the momentum that they originally had. Yeah, because I mean, if you wind the clock back to then, right, being a small launch company with that many launches, yeah. you know, in the in the bank, so to speak, was yeah pretty darn good. So uh, I guess before you know today, the most recent thing that Firefly was in the news for was the uh, fire that they had back in January uh, on the pad. Yeah, there was uh, an engine bay fire due to some misconfigured software. And so it's been unfortunate, but at least that, you know, every time we run into problems like this, the good news is that it's not a, you know, something uh, intrinsic to the design of the uh, the rocket or anything like that. Yeah. And that, that video is really interesting because you can see as soon as the engine lights up and the fire begins, the two tanks start venting furiously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know if that's the vehicle understanding that there's a problem and trying to safe itself as best as possible, or if it's just an overpressure uh, in the tanks, maybe due to higher ambient temperatures, that's, that seems a little, a little quick of a response, but you know, Mm. so yeah, that, that was back in January. So the big news uh, is that they just signed a a launch services agreement with uh, Spaceflight Inc., which is uh, the Seattle based company. That's really a, a payload integrator more than like, you know, its own kind of launch company or spacecraft building company or anything like that. They're a matchmaker. They're a matchmaker. Yeah. They, they buy uh, what they buy, like excess capacity on rockets and then kind of consolidate secondary payloads into them. And, uh, you know, and that's a cheaper, easier, better way to actually, I don't want to say better way. That's a cheaper and easier way to fly for a lot of companies. Uh, if, if, if that meets your, your needs. And so. But yeah, overall, I didn't realize just how many ride shares they had done. 29 in all, taking up uh, 271 uh, secondary uh, payloads. And uh, that included nine last year alone, where I think the most interesting one was Bearsheet, was uh, was one that basically got on board due to this company. And so um, they've, signed, uh, they've signed this deal that they will fly, or they will be the main provider of a, uh, a Firefly uh, Alpha rockets uh, launch next year. I saw the middle of 2021 being reported uh, from uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base. And so this, uh, it's based on the nature of this company, you know, we don't know anything about the payloads yet. And I mean, what the payloads are hasn't come together yet. Mm-hmm. 
But um, yeah, so the idea is uh, it'll be 630 kilograms to uh, sun-synchronous orbit. And uh, uh, what I thought was interesting was that this has been years in the works, essentially, and that uh, uh, presumably the sort of uh, Firefly uh, 2.0, uh, the post-chaos company, uh, <laughs> has uh, had, uh, you know, working with these kind of integrators as a key part of their overall launch strategy, which is, you know, cool and smart because, right, the kind of wisdom that is passing around with everybody is that there's too many small launch providers right now. So there's going to have to be right. some contrition in the market. And so trying to find, you know, kind of clever and interesting ways to kind of step, stand out among the crowd is you know, a good thing. So uh, just, just to be clear, I don't think we've said this yet. Um, the original company was called Firefly Space Systems. The new company is called Firefly Aerospace. So I, I don't think we're ever really going to um, use all those words <laughs> to, right. to describe the two companies. Um, so when, when you hear us talking about old and new, that's that's what you'd be Googling for if you wanted to learn more. So yeah, um, is this the first time that we've heard that they are going to be flying out of Vandenberg? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Vandenberg for uh, both alpha launches and future launches of beta. Uh, but they are hoping to eventually operate at Slick 20 as well. They actually plan on developing manufacturing facilities at the Cape. So, yeah, they they are totally going to be based in Florida, too, yeah. uh, since they'll be making rockets there. It was so exciting to have somebody seriously looking at an aerospike. And especially after mm. um, Tim Dodd's video, I'm less and less convinced that it's ever going to be uh, a, a really, truly advantageous engine configuration i'm really looking forward to in the in the far future when it can be a hobbyist thing you know like your your crazy uncle who uh who's you know still does his works on his own rockets uh, yeah. why does he do that oh just for fun i don't know what why doesn't he just get on the on the space elevator. Well, you know, he's, he's an old guy and he's just kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't, in the commercial sector, it seems unlikely to ever really be the best idea, um, which really kind of makes me sad because it, it was so exciting to, to see it potentially happening. So it's just such a cool concept. It's just that there's this little problem about keeping that spike from melting. And that's like a, mm -hmm. that's, that's a real problem. <laughs> Alas. So Dennis, what's, what's coming up in the future for Firefly? Uh, well, they got a busy year. Uh, they plan to test their uh, first and second stage engines in the next couple months, uh, where the second stage will be in May. And so that's really just in a matter of weeks. And then over the summer, hopefully the first stage, they'll be able to test in June. Uh, of course, like you're kind of alluding to before, all these are prone to slip, but uh, maybe not. So that's the current anticipated times for that. Going back a little bit, when I mentioned about their overall launch strategy, they also had announced a, uh, a launch service agreement with... Uh, the launch services agreement with uh, Innovative Solutions in Space, or ISIS, to basically handle their European launches. And so this is another one of these kind of payload aggregators. And so, yeah, I mean, that really is kind of their their style, which is pretty cool. One other thing to mention, which I think that you had mentioned very, very briefly, was their Firefly Beta vehicle, which I guess is just called Firefly Beta, um, and their current rocket is called Alpha. That's actually what they've always been called, now that I think about it. Um, mm. So it's just called Firefly Beta. And that version is uh, their heavy lift type of a vehicle. Um, I don't know how much heavier. I don't think it would compete with a medium lift rocket, but maybe that used to be three cores strapped together, but now it is actually just one core with a Rocketdyne AR-1 engine, which I don't know where oh. that is in development, but that is who they're contracted with um, now. And so they might be waiting on the engine because I think that that has run into some issues. Um, I'd have to look into it a little bit further, but uh, 
Yeah, I don't think that Aerojet Rocketdyne has any other customers for that particular engine. I, I would be surprised if the... Does this article actually say that they're not doing three stages strapped together? Because that kind of seems like... I mean, you can you can put more thrust in your rocket, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have uh, an upgrade that's worthy of a new name. Uh, obviously, if you're switching engines, you need a new name. But like, it seems like that's not going to really drastically increase their payload. The Firefly Alpha, if I'm reading the numbers right, all four engines would give it a total thrust of 736 kilonewtons, but with the AR-1, it would be 2200. So it is still an upgrade. So that's about three times as much thrust there. Almost like if you had three Three cores. cores. (laughs) (laughs) And then we definitely need to talk about Firefly Genesis. So Firefly Genesis is a, uh, you know, it's a bear sheet looking uh, lander. They're, you know, part of the uh, Firefly Aerospace, part of the CLIPS program. And so, you know, we, we talked about bear sheet in a good bit of detail in the past so if you find that episode uh enjoy checking it out uh you know just about the mission itself back when it was launching but anyway yeah so bear sheet had that cool kind of like you know it had its own engine and made its way to the moon on its own but um yeah the genesis lander uh i don't know how much of the mission uh exists uh, that might be a short and sweet or a news item in the future, <laughs> but uh, it's it's just uh, an awesome looking vehicle. Parachute was a great looking vehicle, and uh, a lot of interesting stuff. I'm sure if you just kind of read up on the specs about what Parachute was like, that'll tell you a lot of what to expect when it comes to the Genesis lander, and kind of give another uh, second crack at getting that type of uh, vehicle to the lunar surface. Let's do three short and sweets. What's the first one? Ben? All right. Uh, this one is a hat tip to Sam in the chat for posting a link in our Discord. Starliner requires more than a reflight to be fit for crew. So NASA's Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel held their Q2 meeting this week, and CNBC's Michael Sheets reported some of their findings. They have decided that Starliner's Demo 2 reflight is not ready to get underway yet, but to quote Sheets, the path forward appears feasible. Additionally, they said that just flying Demo 2 is not sufficient to resolve the issues discovered since the first demo. More details are likely to be forthcoming this week as ASAP gets more updates from Boeing representatives. And next up, Dream Chaser gets its wings. Sierra Nevada Corporation's Louisville, Colorado production facility has received its first set of wings for Dream Chaser. Uh, This means Sierra Nevada can now move on to the next step of integrating the wings into the complex wing deployment system, which allows for folding of the wings in order to fit Dream Chaser into an upper stage payload fairing. Dream Chaser is slated to begin delivery to the ISS as part of its CRS-2 contract in late 2021 and is contracted for six missions, though the vehicle can be reused at least 15 times. So that's really cool. That's cool. Can't wait to see it. And finally, the design has been narrowed for future Mars Ascent vehicle. While the Perseverance rover prepares to launch to the Red Planet in July, NASA has settled on a key design feature for the Mars Ascent vehicle, or MAV, that will ultimately return those samples to Earth. The MAV will use a two-stage solid rocket for its ascent, rather than a previously considered single-stage hybrid propulsion system. After ground testing showed the technology for the latter was more complex and less mature than originally thought. Over two launches, NASA and ESA will send the MAV along with a stationary landing platform, a mobile robot to collect the samples, and an Earth return orbiter for the ride home. That's going to be so freaking cool. <laughs> okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have a really cool 
Uh, well, this I guess this isn't a question, comment, or a correction, but just cool stuff. Questions, comments, corrections, and cool things. <laughs> so one of our listeners, Steigarfield, had posted something or found a link in a subreddit, the Starlink subreddit, for a possible Starlink configuration, at, like as in the satellite itself, mm. um, which is something I hadn't really thought about. I honestly didn't know how it looked in orbit. I just know that, that there's a lot of them up there. Same um, here. <laughs> You, oh, okay, well then I feel like you guys might be in the minority because we get these mysterious uh, feed blackouts whenever they actually do the deployment, like actually trigger the deployment mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I've seen the deployment, no, that, but I haven't seen and, them once they're deployed. Yeah, you know and, I mean? like and well, and that that's the second step, right? Is is we don't know exactly how the deployment mechanism works. And we also don't know exactly what their flight configuration looks like. So what we do know is that they basically look like a, a large sheet pan, maybe like a large aluminum MacBook <laughs> with uh, a solar panel that packs on top. And then it's a single solar panel that's not articulated. It folds out and that's it. And there, there have been some really nice uh, photos from the ground uh, of these things that, you know, it, it's it's an orbital photo. So it's kind of iffy. <laughs> Um, but I mean, they're, they're, you know, remarkably clear for something that that that's that far away through that much air, but we, we don't know exactly what they look like when they're on orbit. And so, um, this one user Langesacht put together all of the resources that we can find so far, um, SpaceX documents, publicity, photos and animations, uh, Elon's random tweets about the vehicle, um, <laughs> And put together um, a CG model and then some suggested flight configurations. And, and I, I think these both feel correct to me. So the idea is that um, the thing is flown, packed up, um, you know, everything folded up, and then it can deploy the solar panel and the two uh, dishes. Uh, so if the solar panel is opening up like the the screen of a MacBook, if you, if you folded it all the way open and then, ex, you know, extended the panel so that it's pointing upwards and it's all flat, that's probably the thrust configuration because we can see the, um, the argon, or not the argon, the krypton, um, mm. electric motor sort of the, at the, the latch of the, of the computer, uh, of the laptop, um, on that end. Um, and so if you want to light that thing up, you're going to have to have as much mass in line with it as possible. So folding the the screen of the laptop all the way open and then extending the panel is probably going to be that configuration. But that's not a great configuration for actually communicating with Earth because the panels would be pointing at 90 degrees from the the actual photovoltaic cell face of of the fold-out solar array. So that uh, this user suggests that, you know, we go in this long uh, configuration to thrust and then you can rotate the solar panel upward to be at 90 degrees with the flat body, kind of with the sheet pan body to point upward. And that is uh, a good configuration for actually doing your regular operations because then you can present most of those PV cells to the sun while keeping your vehicle pointed at Earth. The question here, though, is actually, this is actually really interesting, and OP in Reddit actually points this out, is when we look at actual photos of the vehicle, the uppermost panel is not showing solar cells. It's actually showing the back of the panel, which probably means that there's an odd number of panels. If that's the case, then SpaceX's publicity animations and photos 
are incorrect because they have an even number of panels. Or if that's correct, then it means that the publicity photos and animations have the, uh, the solar cells on the wrong side of the panels. So mm-hmm. that, that's an interesting, an interesting gap that we don't, <laughs> that we don't know. We, we see a conflict and we don't know how it's actually resolved. But yeah, it, it's, it's a fantastic animation. Thank you for pointing it out, Stai. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of these vehicles as, uh, I guess as SpaceX gets more and more comfortable releasing information. Mm. All right, let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, so we have one winner, the Greek. What does permanently mean? Oh, it means permanently. Okay. <laughs> all, all, this, this is an always and forever winner. <laughs> okay. So we have one winner of the Greek, apparently permanently, and the clue for last week was Puma Puma Priest. And I remember making a joke, which didn't make it into the show, because this was before we were recording, that I thought that it was something like what it ended up being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought for sure you were going to get it. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't know the answer, but I kind of stumbled upon it like accidentally just because I kind of saw the theme of the clue. So anyway, congratulations, the Greek. And I guess take us away, Ben. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> All right, so this week in Space Fight History is April 29th, 1954. It was the launch of Nike, Nike Demon. Um, Deacon. Uh, <laughs> Deacon, sorry. I, I, I can't the say Demon even Deacons. Google get... Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Isn't isn't that a, a sports team, the Demon Deacons? Wake Forest yeah. University. Oh, really? They're the Demon Deacons. And so if you if you search for Nike Deacon, um, you get Deacon Demon branded Nike t-shirts <laughs> and things. All right. So first, if the name doesn't clue you in, Nike Nike Deacon is a launch vehicle. And it's one of those kind of unnamed launch vehicles where it's just the name of all the stages stacked up. So kind of like Mercury Redstone or Mercury Atlas, Nike, Nike Demon. So the reason the Greek is the permanent winner <laughs> is because uh, I've said on the show before how I love it when people include photos in their in their guesses. And this time we not only have a photo, but we have we have some Photoshop. So, um, the Greek took a photo. Uh, it looks like it's, uh, um, Saturn five, but put two <laughs> Nike shoes on, on the bottom. And then, uh, it, it looks like a, like a deacon or a pope, like a cutout photo of, of a, of a guy wearing a Catholic hat, um, on the top. And yeah, that's, Benedict. that's just the best. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is that Pope Benedict? Okay. <laughs> So, that, I mean, it's, it's just the best and uh, it's fantastic. So, that is wonderful. Nike, Nike Deacon. I'm going to go through this slowly in order. So, first, Project Nike. Uh, it was proposed in 1945. Project Nike was proposed in response to basically an RFP, a rep- request for proposals from the War Department, um, which came out the year before, I believe, in, in 1944. Um, but basically, uh, the War Department went okay, wait, we've got all these new jet aircraft zipping around. We need some sort of offset for this, for this new danger, right? We, we need to be able to counter this. So uh, Project Nike was proposed along with, I think one of, I can't remember the name of the other vehicle, but Nike basically wound up being, I think they both, uh, both projects were put into effect, but Nike was particularly good because it's the, the Nike rocket is a solid engine um, and it's, you know, it's not point and shoot, but it's it's a super simple uh, vehicle um, that can be launched quickly, whereas Bomark had liquid fuels. And uh, Nike, it, like I said, it wasn't exactly point and shoot because, you know, you've got a, a quickly moving target. Um, so Project Nike was not only to develop the vehicle, but also to develop the ground support hardware. They, they had multiple radar arrays that could um, track both the incoming target to be able to get 
um, good enough resolution to be able to lead it when they were firing. Um, and then also to track the rocket in flight and issue commands to it to actually steer. Um, and one of the cool things is, I, I don't know if this is a security thing or like an anti-jamming thing, but the, um, the Nike uh, received its commands via radio. They were encoded, so it decoded them. And then instead of just having a transponder that sent beeps back home, it actually rebroadcast its decoded commands back to the ground. So I don't, I don't know if there was some sort of uh, checking involved there. It seems really crazy to broadcast an encoded signal and then also a clear version of the signal. <laughs> um, but they, uh, you know, instead of just having, um, instead of just having a ping, they were actually. Uh, broadcasting data back. So I think it helped to authenticate it as the, the vehicle that was actually um, being tracked. So that, that's Project Nike. Uh, Deakin was an upper stage. Um, it was descended from the British rocket called Hercules. Both the Hercules and the Deakin had star-shaped grain. They're solid rockets. So it, there's a star-shaped cross-section in the middle, which results in incredibly high thrust. And Deacon, I believe it actually had a redesigned grain from Hercules, which it inherited from. But in any event, it, it wound up being a, a fairly similar vehicle. And Deacon's really cool because you you will see it flown in multiple configurations, uh, single, triple, and quadruple crust clusters. I don't know if they ever did uh, two engines or five engines. All I was able to find solid sources for were uh, one three and four engines clustered together. And Deacon was used for all sorts of things. You know, back when we were flying sounding rockets left, right, and center, you know, there were just, they were applied to a, a bunch of different things. But what's really interesting is not only was it flown solo from the ground, just from a launch stand, but it was also flown on a raccoon. Um, so you, you know, attach it to a balloon, send the balloon up and then fire up the rocket. So that's obviously not a strategic use. That's a scientific use. Now, uh, NACA, well, no, it's not pronounced NACA. The NACA, as they're starting to learn about um, high-speed, you know, hypersonic flight and uh, and wanting to get scientific measurements of of the atmosphere, they're starting to look for sounding rockets they can rely on. And initially, Aero B was kind of the the go-to, but Aero B is expensive. It's liquid fuel, so it it requires more care, but also more time to actually get it off the launch pad. Um, so Nike Deacon turned out to be a really good fit. They had a bunch of Nikes sitting around um, and they had at least a couple Deacons sitting around. I don't know if they manufactured additional Deacons uh, for this, but at least some of them were were surplus from previous projects. And Nike Deacon as a two-stage rocket first launched in 1953 and they continued to fly them until 1957. And then it was superseded by, um, is it Nike Ajax? Oh no, it's it's Nike Aztec, I think. I can't, I can't remember all these names. There's so uh, many on that one link. I can't help you <laughs> for real. Um, but anyway, um, Nike Deacon was cheaper and faster than Aerobee, and it allowed NACA and NASA to do um, a lot of experiments. So um, they used it for air density studies, where they basically flew a sphere up into the upper atmosphere and then watched how fast it f it fell, um, which told them about the air density. Um, they used it for heat transfer studies. They actually did some solar studies in UV and X-ray, um, and they also did aerodynamic testing. So in the show notes will be a photo of 
of a Deacon by itself. But it also, um, this was a configuration that was flown with a Nike first stage. But in this photo, it's a black and white photo with somebody actually uh, touching the rocket on the on the stand, uh, they're they're doing some sort of launch prep, but it looks like a two stage rocket. But in fact, the uh, the bottom stage that's got four uh, cylinders basically tied together is the Deacon, and then the payload is on top, and it, it looks like um, like a classic tin tin rocket, mm. and that was an aerodynamic model. And so they, they actually did a lot of aerodynamic testing with the Nike Deacon system. They not only tested rocket shapes, but they actually tested uh, airplane shapes. So they would put, you know, an airplane model on top of this and, and fly it. Two more things about Nike Deacon. It was launched out of Wallops. As far as I can tell, it was exclusively launched out of Wallops. And then just a quick spec before we move from Nike Deacon to Nike Nike Deacon. Uh, Nike Deacon was able to fly a 50 pound payload that's 23 kilograms, a 50 pound payload to 69 miles or uh, 111 kilometers. So 50 to 69, 50 pounds to 69 miles. Nike Nike Deacon was only flown once and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a Nike with a Nike on top of it and then a Deacon on top of that. <laughs> it's a three stage rocket and similar to Nike Deacon. Um, Nike Nike Deacon <laughs> had uh, had a four uh, a four engine Deacon on top of it, so they they described uh, Deacon as as a peel away, uh, having four rocket stages or the, having the four engines that peeled away. I don't think that they actually peeled away. I think that's referring that that's kind of the same way of saying like a strap on booster. Mm. Okay, yeah, because I was kind of wondering what that meant. Yeah, to peel away. Yeah, exactly. So I don't I don't think they actually you know, all fell away from the vehicle. But what's interesting is even though I found a couple sources talking about this as a four engine Deacon, the only photo I was able to find of it was as a single uh, engine rocket, which would make sense if you've got two larger Nikes on the bottom. But in any event, there will be a photo in the show notes um, of the only Nike Nike Deacon. Uh, as far as I can tell, it's, it's the only one that was ever constructed. Certainly the only one that was ever flown. So Nike Nike Deacon was nine meters tall. <laughs> that's uh, almost, that's 29 and a half feet tall. And on its flight, it didn't fly to its maximum, uh, altitude. Instead, it only flew to 10 kilometers or six miles. So, so if, uh, Nike Deacon is capable of flying 50 pounds to nine, 69 miles, Nike Nike Deacon was theoretically capable of flying 50 pounds to 100 miles. Um, so that's 23 kilograms to 160 kilometers. And it's it's kind of interesting that it only, it, it didn't even fly as high as, I believe it actually underperformed Deacon on its own. I don't, I don't know what the deal was. Uh, it doesn't look like they had a giant payload on it. I didn't see any reports of a failure. So maybe they just had a really low, uh, a, a really shallow flight profile. I'm not sure. Or maybe the 10 kilometers is a typo because there really isn't that much information about this vehicle. But there you go. The launch of Nike Nike Deacon back in 1954. Okay, cool. Nice. Just so everyone knows, my guess was, and I was just throwing it out there because it didn't yeah. actually mean anything. I said Tiger Tiger Deacon. So I was just off by, you know, I was going for the animal and not the pair of shoes. I should have went, you know. <laughs> so I came close. That's <laughs> 
So what is our clue for next week? All right. So next week in 1962, the clue is don't take your jacket off too early. Good advice. That is good advice. And it's also a clue of some sort. (laughs) (laughs) So next week in 1962, don't take your jacket off too early. If you think you know what that's about, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. And we don't have any upcoming spaceflight events this week. So in that case, let's just skip right to the end, huh? (laughs) And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links for Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.